Hey, this is Quad, and welcome to another episode of MDPHC podcast. And in this podcast, I want to tell you about medicine, biology, informatics, because as I'm learning these things, right, I really wish that、uh, more people knew about them. So I want to、uh, simplify the fundamentals and the latest. Cool stuff in this field, and tell you in this podcast. So, if you haven't subscribed, please subscribe, and please let me know how I'm doing. I would love to get feedback and make this podcast better. And in today's episode, today's first interview episode,、um, I have a guest, probably the best guest that I can hope for, because he was always there when、uh, when I started something new. And he gave me lots of feedback. He also gave me a hard time, <laughs> and I respect him for how he、um, tells me the truth. And、uh, um, he just wants to make things better. And his name is Doctor Justin Huan. He、um, got his fully computational degree at UNC, and then he went to UCSD for his PhD in bioinformatics. He's not one of those people who just want to get a PhD and know a little bit of coding here and there, do a project and you know piece out kind of PhD. He is actually hardcore、uh, computational person, and、um, that's why he's very rare, right? He knows so much about、um, quantitative stuff and he can code, he can make things work, but he's applying all that skills in cancer, and he's been super super focused in cancer. And he really wants to make a difference. And this interview is going to be good for you because this guy's been doing computational work for over a decade, and he has, you know, so much experience. He's done this, he's done that, many languages, different projects, multiple PIs, multiple publications, different institutions, and he's also a deep thinker. He thinks about. What he's doing, and then the meta of what he's doing, and what the field is going, how to be a good computational biologist, and how to just do well and excel in this craft. It's really nice to get some of his experience. So I hope you enjoy today's interview with Dr. Justin Huang. It's 1 a.m. and yesterday I wanted to start the podcast because I was reading paper and I want to deliver this complicated paper in an easy way to the world. And I'm glad that I used Anchor.fm because I went to their website, made an account, made a recording, and boom, boom, bam! I have my first podcast. And tonight I finished my second podcast with Anchor. So if you wanna tell the world something that you're passionate about. Download the free Anchor app or go to the Anchor.fm to get started. Well, hello, Justin. Hi, Quad. So, are you? I know Justin from UCSD times.、Um, I used to work in the lab that Justin was a graduate student in, and he helped me out with a lot of my work. And、uh, he was kind of a, like big brother kind of person to me. So, so Justin, thank you for being on the podcast today. Do you want to tell a little bit about yourself and what you do? 
Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks, Kwa, for having me today. Um, so uh, I guess a little bit about myself. My name is uh, Justin Huang. I am currently an institute researcher, uh, which is basically like a early career staff scientist position at um, the traction platform in the therapeutics discovery uh, department at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. Uh, I graduated my PhD from uh, UCSD, as uh, Quat mentioned, uh, in bioinformatics and systems biology uh, from the Trey Idaker lab, uh, studying mostly network biology. Um, and I do essentially bioinformatics and computational biology uh, for uh, new target discovery and, uh, um, you know, in rare and hard to treat cancers uh, as a part of the uh, translational uh, biology uh, platform at uh, MD Anderson. Nice. And um, you moved from, you were at UCSD for quite a while. And before that, you're at UNC and now you're at um, MD Anderson. Do you notice any like difference in culture or difference in like um, how things are run? Because what I notice is UCSD is very different from uh, Stanford where I'm at now. Uh, I feel the difference. And the, I, the, to describe it, it's like UCSD, I felt more um, like a f kind of flat yet disconnected yet connected, have that kind of floating feeling to it. But at Stanford, things are more connected. Um, it has that like central organization kind of feeling. And I was wondering what you think about that kind of cultural difference between where you're at and where you were before. Yeah, so um, originally, of course, I'm, I'm from North Carolina. Um, and I did, you know, I grew up there. I went to, uh, went to my undergrad there. Um, and North Carolina is, I guess, a medium-sized school. It's you know, when I was there, it was probably about 17,000 undergraduate students. When I moved to UCSD uh, to start my graduate career, um, I think I was originally already sort of taken by sort of the size of the school. Um, UCSD is uh, significantly larger mm -hmm. in terms of student body. Uh, and so, you know, it's very easy to see how somebody might get sort of swallowed up in a place yeah. um, like that if you're not used to that. Um, and, you know, North Carolina also, like, I'm, you know, San Diego was actually the biggest city that I had ever lived in at that time. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, part of that transition really was actually being far away from home. Um, and I think that that's, you know, part of what made sort of graduate school sort of challenging, perhaps initially, is, you know, you move to a place, you don't know any people. Mm -hmm. So it's not just that, you know, you have to deal with uh, a cultural difference of, you know, the East Coast versus the West Coast, the South versus the mm -hmm. West Coast, mm -hmm. right? Um, <laughs> you have to, uh, you know, not only adjust to the culture, but you also have to sort of adjust, you know, to your own personal um, life of basically not knowing anybody and, and starting starting yeah. from scratch again. And, you know, I was lucky to find, you know, some great um, friends of mine through, through graduate school um, and who I am great friends with to, to this day. And, um, you know, those are the things that, still i think really help you make those types of transitions you have to find those people um and then when i moved here to to texas you know mm -hmm. naturally there is a big state rivalry right between uh you know the big state of california mm -hmm. versus the big state of texas right mm -hmm. there's um 
you know, the differences are truly endless uh, in terms <laughs> of the way people think, the way, you know, people, um, you know, are, you know, the way people basically carry themselves <laughs> even, um, what people drive, what people eat, all those things are different here. Um, but, you know, the one thread that I've, I've sort of, um, you know, tried to really connect all of my experiences together with is that, you know, since I knew that my, um, my career would probably lead me to sort of be in the sciences, um, mm -hmm. I, it was important to me to choose sort of somewhere where I feel like one, that I could be trained well. Um, and so it was important to, for me to go to good schools, but also find great mentors and mm -hmm. also, um, you know, go to a place where I know sort of the science that we do or the work that we do um, will have a chance to make a difference. And so, you know, the reason I'm, I, you know, a personal reason why I ended up here in, in, in Houston at MD Anderson is, is, um, you know, three of my four grandparents um, mm -hmm. have passed away due to cancer. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been a disease that I've been, uh, you know, profoundly impacted by mm -hmm. personally. And I know, of course, you know, millions of other people have been uh, personally impacted by mm -hmm. this disease as well. And so, uh, and, and it happens to be one of those diseases where it's very challenging to treat, but, you know, there are lots of tools and tons of smart people working on it. It's one of those problems where, you know, we have um, some of the brightest minds in science working on. And I think, you know, just to sort of be close to that action is, is really exciting to me sort mm -hmm. of intellectually. Um, and I knew that, you know, when I started doing some sort of initial cancer work at, mm -hmm. um, in Trey's lab, that this was sort of, um, you know, if I could find some way to, to, uh, really um, further pursue my career in, mm -hmm. um, you know, studying cancer, that, that's definitely, I think, probably where I was going to end up. And so I feel very fortunate to be working at mm -hmm. one of the top cancer centers in the world, um, you know, and, and really working to make a difference every day. And in, in your career, looking back from college to now, was there a time where you almost did something else? Because given your undergrad background, and I know people who uh, do a lot of uh, programming in biology and medicine and all that, but most of them are not that good, right? But you are, you have a good like training and you use the right language, right tool, right system. And you, you have that kind of a much more computational um, culture with you, right? And I'm sure it was tempting to do non-biology things or just go into different kind of field because, you know, you can get paid more. You can do sort all different kind of things, and it's just hotter sometimes, right? And was there a time like that in your in your past? And and can you tell me more about those times? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it was really interesting to sort of reflect back how I ended up here because you know, even going back to high school, I was fortunate enough to go to sort of this boarding yeah, yeah. high school for for um, you know. Uh, students uh, that really focused on on science and mathematics, and that's really actually where I got my sort of really formal introduction to science uh, and and how to do science. And um, in those courses there, uh, I actually found out that I am a really bad bench scientist. Um, <laughs> and so 
when you find that out early, that really sort of limits your options in terms of being in science, yeah. um, especially at that time when bioinformatics is so young. Um, and I also was really against doing sort of programming or computer science because uh, both of my parents are um, both of my parents are in computer science, and right. you know, as just sort of a young person, you just sort of don't want to. Maybe you just <laughs> want to rebel. You want to do your own thing. Right? I was like, I'm gonna yeah. do science. I'm gonna go yeah. and, and uh, uh, you know, my very first <laughs> programming course. Um, my parents were very disappointed in my overall performance um, <laughs> because I just didn't quite understand it. it. You know, programming requires you to sort of think differently, right? Yeah, and yeah. in terms of logic, and and um, you know, it's not uh, it, yes. There, while there, yes is the right answer. Um, you know, it's it's not just the right answer. You get the right answer at the end. It's sort of how you get to the right answer. Yeah. And, and I actually am, you know, I think that sort of everyone probably should take an introductory programming class too, you know, because it, I think it really helps sort mm -hmm. of people think logically. Um, but as I sort of progress through high school further, you know, it turns out I'm not a good bench scientist. So I turn back to sort of computer science and, and I eventually sort of get a knack for it. Um, and, and this is sort of how I find out that, okay, well, I'm not good at bench science. So I guess I'm just going to do computational science because, <laughs> um, you know, it's a way that I can still do science um, yeah. and impact medicine or uh, do sort of impactful work. But, you know, I don't have to touch any pipettes or touch any beakers yeah. <laughs> or grow any cells, you know, like I'm very good at contaminating cells, but it's not, <laughs> you know, great if, if you're trying to be a bench scientist. Yeah, I, um, I remember clearly like when, um, so you were, so I remember I, I was sitting next to you for a while, right? And I remember you were next to the bench where they did a lot of East work and it's, it says no food and you always had lots of food. And uh, I also well, remember- Well, I mean, let's be, well, like, like don't, uh, don't expose me here. I mean, like, it's not like I'm eating on the bench. That's right, right? that's there, right. It says no You're food clean. on the other side of the glass. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, I mean, of course I'd be very close to it, but I mean, that's where my desk is, you know? I'm yeah. working through lunch these we, days. We, we had a really good desk there and, I, and I, you had a really nice keyboard. Uh, you know that, you remember the keyboard? The, <laughs> the Dell 87 or something? The, yeah, the M87, the, yeah. the original like IBM uh, yeah. keyboards with the spring-loaded action. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's that's where I I found my love. I mean, you know, I was inspired by by my mentor Trey. Trey has one. In oh my, office. yeah. So, so, so the, the, my first impression of Trey, I'm sure you have one too. Was that JP put, put me into his office, just knocked the door, opened the door. He's like, "Hey, Trey, good. I'm uh, you know, hire this kid." And Trey's looking at JP and his hands are like da, 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 typing some stuff. I still don't know if he's typing for reals or just for show. But, <laughs> you know, but that, that sound, that Dell keyboard. It's a sound of productivity as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I, I have a mechanical keyboard at work now too. And, and yeah. I definitely catch, uh, catch some heat for it because, you know, you can hear me typing away from down the hall. But, yeah. um, you know. To now, now it's white noise to to my colleagues around me. At least, hopefully, I, at and, least I hope that's the case. Do you, do you get like a little high, like evenings? You just sit on your computer with your keyboard, like you know what feel I'm talking about. Like you just you just start typing yes, that you, J. You, you get you get in that zone. <laughs> yeah. No, you get in that zone. And I know. So there's something about, and, and this is obviously completely off base, <laughs> but like you know. Like when you're when you're working and and especially on a mechanical keyboard yes. and if your fingers can really fly on those things, it I really believe that having a mechanical keyboard actually allows me to type and work faster. Um, while it is louder 
Um, I also think that, you know, it's, you know, just sitting there, um, you know, programming, like it's very easy to just two, three, four hours go by yeah. and, you know, you look up and, you know, you're, you're, you know, almost to the end of the workday, you know, but it's one of those things that I think it, it's, it's, it's an, I mean, you know, for, for a programmer, right? Like one of the most important tools that they have is their keyboard, you know? Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I'm a believer in investing in, you know, Everything. good tools <laughs> to do good work, yeah. you know, and, you know, your keyboard is really a part of that. Yeah. And so you had a nice setup always, like you had a perfect setup, even, you know, the chair, the neck support, you know, I, I think you had a great setup. Um, I mean, I mean, if I'm going to be sitting in this chair for eight to 12 hours yeah, a day, right? I like, agree. you know, those are, you think about sort of how, how challenging that could be yeah. on your back, in your body, if you're, you know, if you're sitting in an uncomfortable chair for eight hours and 12 hours yeah. every single day, yeah. you know, it's, it's, in, you know, it's an important part of also making sure you still do good work, right? Is that sort of you take care of like you have making sure you have the physical ability to, yeah. to do good work. I agree. I think it's really important to invest in good, good system. And, and, you know, Pablo, Dr. Pablo Tamayo, um, somebody that I think he was yes. also in your, in your advising group. He was on my thesis committee. Yeah. His setup is ridiculous too. He has three 50 some inch monitors and, <laughs> and he's, he, he doesn't like, he, he doesn't, he's not stingy when it comes to buying stuff for, for his projects. And he always says something like, we're working on the, you know, most important problems. What's the point of like, you know, being stingy. He just, you know, signs up for everything he can think of grammarly, um, <laughs> like Spotify, anything he takes to increase his productivity. He does that. So that's kind of cool. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And, you know, so at UCSD, you did your PhD in um, network biology. And I came across your paper in the past. I don't remember exactly, but you did a really nice review of using different types of network for analyzing biological data, uh, especially cancer. So I know a lot of people at Stanford, at UCSD, at all these different places, they are very interested in doing network biology. And uh, they, they, in fact, do something about network, right? But most people, they talk about it, but they might not know like the nitty gritty of it. And I know you know this a little bit more than most of these people. Can you give us a little bit of like a how to network biology or what to watch out for <laughs> any, any, you know, anything that you, you know, you spend your time in time. You know, Cause I, I need to do some network biology too, eventually. Right. Like, but I know that there are different types of network. You have different yeah. ways of making these networks and some of them are too general. Some of them have more noises. What is a net? What is a node? So can you kind of give us some like random? Yeah. So, you know, to introduce network, the concept of network biology, um, of course, uh, you have to understand sort of the basic concept of, of a network, right? Which is uh, nodes that are connected by edges. Yeah. Uh, and in network biology, typically these nodes um, represent uh, genes in your genome. Uh, and they are connected uh, through any number of reasons, right? So, you know, you may know that sort of the protein products of these two genes may interact and physically bind with one another. That's a way that you can draw an edge between these two nodes. Uh, you may know that the um, expression of uh, 
these two genes is highly correlated across a mm-hmm. uh, large number of um, uh, cells and, and cell types and, and um, or are regulated by, let's say, the same transcription factor, mm-hmm. um, you know, they may be connected by an edge in that way. You might know that these two genes, when, um, when knocked out simultaneously, uh, lead to uh, a fitness uh, a fitness change in mm-hmm. in a cell or a model organism mm-hmm. uh, that might be a, a, another type of interaction mm-hmm. um, or you know just that these two genes are involved in the same molecular process mm-hmm. or cellular component or whatever yeah. um, and and that might not, that might be an edge right so so there's lots of ways to draw um, an edge between any two uh, proteins, mm-hmm. uh, but that being said, of course, um, you know, not every protein interacts with every other, not every other, and not every gene, sorry, interacts with every other gene. Right. Uh, and sort of these restrictions of when, you know, the, there is no connection there is just as important, mm-hmm. uh, because what that does is that that actually uh, creates, um, or, or that that means that edges between nodes now sort of carry real biological information. Um, and I think from, you know, the, in terms of biological networks, they're also very different than, um, you know, they're, they're or I, I shouldn't say different. They, they, they sort of have these properties that right. um, you see that are similar to um, other networks that you might be familiar with in real life, like social networks, right? right and right, right. in social networks, you have these you know, social butterflies, these people that are, um, you know, hubs there have lots and lots and lots and lots of friends, mm-hmm. right? And then of course, there are many other people who have much fewer friends, right? It's, um, I believe there's a sort of um, theorem out there that basically, if you look at all of your friends mm-hmm. um, on, um, if you look at your friends on uh, Facebook, social media, yeah, right, yeah. On Facebook or whatever, uh, it it is more likely that they're going to have more friends than you, uh, oh. and, and that's that's that is sort of this this averaging effect where there's a big sort of uh, uneven distribution yeah. of um, how many connections any one node in the network might have. Yeah, and so, um, and, and this is is part of. Um, you know, and, and this phenomena exists in biology and, and the nodes that are connected together, uh, partially because of um, study bias, which is which we always have to be aware of. Is you know, more important genes are also more well studied. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And so you know, sometimes it doesn't mean just because a gene isn't that well connected to other genes yeah. that it's not an important gene, right? Yeah. But maybe we just don't quite understand how important it is or why it's important. Uh, it may be important only in certain contexts, right? These networks are, um, we'd like to work with these networks that yeah. uh, seem to be sort of static objects, but they're not um, because, you know, the connections between any two genes is, could be, um, you know, could be time dependent, right? Is, yeah. you know, as part of signaling or as part of how things um, interact with each other in the cell, uh, yeah. you know, not we- every edge is always there. Yeah, and you know, I was the, I, I'm not you know as familiar with network biology and all that, but I always thought about the how people make these networks, right? And one of the ways I think that people do it is they do like protein-protein interactions. They actually mm-hmm. measure protein touching different proteins, and they build this kind of network. 
And I right. always wondered how robust that interaction is because I remember they use non-human cells to build that kind of relationships, right? Sure. And, I mean, yeah. Um, in those types of networks, protein-protein mm -hmm. um, interactions, one specifically, I mean, there are both high throughput and low throughput methods in mm -hmm. how to measure those types of interactions. Uh, early on mm -hmm. in, in uh, sort of molecular biology, we were using sort of model organisms to overexpress human proteins and then just trying to measure directly if they uh, in fact were um, interacting with one another. Right. Uh, but now with, um, with um, uh, uh, mass spectrometry, you know, there, there, you can do these types of measurements more directly and, 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 you know, see, and see many, many more proteins um, and whether or not they connect um, or uh, uh, physically interact with one another. And so, but, you know, it is, it is worth noting, right, that just oh. because uh, two proteins might physically interact with one another uh, under these um, ex vivo or uh, in vitro conditions, or you know, even in like yeast, let's say, right, it doesn't mean that they, you know, their interaction has any real functional relevance. Right. I mean, of course, um, there are many of in many of these low throughput experiments, uh -huh. they validate that this particular interaction happens and maybe there is some real functional relationship you know i think sort of the most obvious of these is is essentially if you have protein complexes right right um right, right you know multiple protein products come together for mm -hmm. a singular molecular function um you know that is sort of the what we think we're measuring at least with the protein protein mm -hmm. interactions but um you know of course as we discussed already you know proteins can interact in for under all sorts of different types of conditions um Another really good one is uh, signaling, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, phosphorylation relationships between proteins. Um, you know, and, and, how, and those are not permanent relationships. And how robust do you think? So the earlier ones that people found, right, using yeast and all that, they have this kind of general what people think proteins would, you know, touch kind of back background network, I guess. And then they have these new technologies, mass spec, um, human cells, and all these perturbations. And how much do you think, because I don't know, how much did it change? How much, suppose five years from now on, do you think the backbone, we're talking about protein, protein interaction network here. Do you think that backbone is going to change a lot or a little? And what's, what's your intuition there? Yeah, so, I mean, I think both, both types of experiments have a role here to define mm -hmm the space in which protein-protein interactions exist. Um, the low throughput experiments, of course, you know, slowly are slowly chugging along, validating uh, and like uh, validating whether or not uh, any two proteins yeah. might interact, right? Um, and then as more people do more experiments, what, what we're noticing is that, you know, protein-protein interactions will be validated in multiple um, different um, scientific uh, scientific papers, and yeah. you know when you have lots of different groups, you know, saying that these two things interact. I think you can be much more confident that these two proteins will interact with one another. Um, however, again, right when you are looking at these sort of low throughput experiments, the bias of these low throughput experiments is in genes that investigators know about. Right, it's in genes that 
investigators care about because they're related to disease in some way or they're right. related to certain key molecular functions. Um, but there are plenty of proteins out there that we have no idea what they do. Sure. Um, and part of understanding what they do may be understanding perhaps if it has any uh, protein binding partners. I see, I and, see. And those high throughput methods are sort of a nice high level way of suggesting that I for see. maybe this unknown protein product that there may be some. And then if it binds to, let's say a handful of other protein products that we know are related to this other molecular function, that's how we really begin to uh, leverage molecular network information to uh, tell us more about unknown protein products. Yeah, so basically what you're saying is these backbone kind of general networks exist, but the purpose of those is to give you kind of a high level theoretical, like a kind of feeling or intuition about these things might interact and it's being searched or analyzing one context. And then if you want to see if it's the case in your biology, in your system, you better check if there are, you know, studies that actually- Yeah, yeah, yeah. always. I mean, you know, this is, this is how it is when you work in discovery of you know, things using computational methods is, you know, the computational methods do a lot of great things. Like, you know, they allow you to search a lot of different scenarios in a very short amount of time. uh, And they allow you to explore a wide range of hypotheses and throw out ones that are not likely to be real um, quickly. Uh, And sort of molecular networks are another way of allowing you to do that, right? Instead of thinking that, okay, well, I don't know what this protein does. Let me see um, what its binding partners are, right? Instead of, well, now I have 20, instead of having 20,000 potential partners to to examine, maybe you're looking at a couple dozen. You can imagine sort of the, you know, now, now science becomes more tractable, right? And this, this is sort of what I think the power of bioinformatics and computational biology is, is, is we take sort of these potentially limitless combinations of genes and proteins and whatever we, we apply uh, the cons- the constraints of known biology or yeah. you know predicted biology, then you know we're we're operating on orders of magnitude less um, possibilities. Now science becomes more tractable, more tractable to, yeah. to explore. And is, um, is is there like a the website or the place that keeps track of all this general interaction and for each edge? Edge here is interaction between two proteins. I guess they compile some kind of a individualized low throughput or validations like i can imagine people making that right you have a huge network store somewhere some lab runs it some institution runs it and then somebody's going to be continuously validating the edges um i can imagine that being useful yeah so uh as far as an institution validating these high throughput edges uh that i think does not exactly exist but there are plenty, of course, of databases of protein-protein interactions where essentially, you know, they, they determine the difference. They, they show we have all of these protein-protein interactions. These are from high-throughput experiments. These are from low-throughput experiments. And, you know, these high-throughput experiments edges were validated by these low-throughput experiments or these low-throughput experiments were, um, you know, uh, corroborated by these high-throughput experiments. Those are Those are the types of uh, you know, database information that I think currently exists. Um, yeah. I don't know if there, I mean, there are certain, I'm sure there are certainly people who um, are doing these high throughput experiments and then, you know, you 
look for some potentially surprising or novel new yeah. interaction that you might sort of, you know, for each one of these interactions, you could imagine that you could essentially yeah. write a paper about them, right? And yeah. so, you know, we're talking, you know, in the space of 20,000 proteins um, <laughs> that can interact with 20,000 other proteins, yeah. uh, you know, now you're in a space of like 400 million interactions, right? And yeah. uh, of course, obviously not all of them are real, but even if 1% of them are real, right now you're looking at 4 million interactions, right? Yeah. So, um, and, and that's sort of the, the and, and you know, so, so it gives you a sense of sort of the scale and, and yeah. how much science we really have accomplished in, in um, molecular biology uh, and cellular biology fields in, in the past even 100 years. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, remember and, that, yeah. Yeah, you remember the NDEX project or something that, um, yep. that Dexter came it's up with? It's still going. I think it's still going. I don't know how it went, but I, I kind of like that because it kind of systematized how you store these useful relationships, right? And is it something that people use a lot lately or how's that going? Well, I mean, I'm not familiar with um, sort of the usage statistics of the index project, but I mean, I know a lot of, um, you know, uh, biologists who, um, you know, utilize or, you know, are studying network biology, you know, they utilize index as a place to store yeah. biological networks, right? But, you know, it, the, the fact that index exists is, is sort of a testament to the fact that, you know, network biology is, is not static, right? There's not right, right. one one grand universal network that you have to use or should use um, because edges can exist for, as we described, right? Edges can exist for all sorts of reasons. Yeah. Um, and there are different networks to describe each one of those potential yeah. uh, uh, networks. And so- yeah. um, and, and also a lot of the times when people are doing non-network related things, they may be doing network things. It's just that I guess the problem that I had with the name network biology is that almost everything that we do from even just, I don't know, calling variants, you can frame a lot of these problems with nodes and edges, right? It's a very abstract way of uh, just carrying human information and knowledge. That's how powerful it is. It, but it's, it's just very hard to, if somebody says, hey, I'm doing network this, network biology that, that is not as informative. I can imagine this person to kind of read some files and graphing things, but I guess it's not as informative as I knew. Like I, when I was you know, more immature, I, I thought about it as a thing, right? Like, um, I don't know, like, like, like uh, I'm doing gene enrichment analysis or I'm calling variants. It's, it's a thing. But I guess as I learned these things, I realized that it's, it's a general thing. It's like I'm doing science <laughs> does it doesn't it make sense yeah yeah no so yeah. yeah yeah i so i think sort of the way to think about network biology is that network biology is not like an application think, right. or an analysis technique right, right, right network right. biology is a field of study uh but it it is a it, what i sort of think of as sort of more classical network biology right is that mm -hmm. sort of it's the study of how um it's the study of how genes specifically are interacting with one another. And then uh, how do we leverage right. that information to make better and more informed decisions uh, on uh, existing biological hypotheses that we might have. Mm -hmm. Now, network biology to other people may mean, you know, other things as well, right? right? You know, but 
I, I tend to think of, of network biology sort of as, as that, but of course also networks are also not sort of static in the right. sense where, or, or not, sorry, f- flat, right? It's not, right, right, right. you know, networks, you know, as you know, from, from Trace Lab, you know, we don't always think of, you know, while the classical thought of network biology is sort of, you know, the picture of a graph, right? As nodes connected by edges, but um, inside of those interactions, right? Those interactions are actually specifically organized, right? It's you know they're the the interactions that exist in, in the network are not random. They have specific purposes and yeah. specific molecular functions. And then as you begin to group the edges, the edges and the nodes together by how their uh, function uh, uh, is inside of a cell, then you actually begin to build a hierarchical. Um, organization of how biology yeah. can work, and and this is how you, and and this is really how you begin to, um, you know, when you think of how small a cell is and how small a protein is, you know, sort of the interactions of those proteins. How do you propagate those interactions of proteins yeah. upwards to complexes and then complexes to pathways, pathways into um, organelles and organelles yeah. into uh, cells and then now cells into tissues and tissues into organisms and organisms into ecosystems, right? Now, right, you can, you can see the entire scale of, of life from, yeah. from top to bottom. And I think that that's, you know, part of the wonder of, of working in um, not just network biology, but, but uh, biology in general. Yeah, and another thing that 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 reminded me of is the the G, the gene ontology network, and I didn't appreciate it in the beginning. But like, if everybody used that kind of nomenclature or updated it in that like flavor, that angle, I guess, I think the the field of bioinformatics is gonna benefit a lot, right? Because now different labs, different institutions, they have their own way of story things, describing things, and um, yeah, I, yeah, I. I agree. Uh, I mean, biology is very challenging in that way, but you know, we we have tried to sort of come up with at least sort of a controlled vocabulary. And, yeah. You know, unfortunately, right, the issue is that sort of the controlled vocabulary um, continues to change. Yeah. Right. Is that you think of you know chemistry, right? Chemistry has these fundamental building blocks, which are these um, these atoms, right, or or, or the um, you know, and you think of the periodic table, mm-hmm. but in, in biology, right. You can think of what, what is sort of the fundamental unit is the fundamental unit, a gene. Well, I mean, the gene is made up of exons, right? So, and then mm-hmm. exons are spliced from the DNA and, you know, biology has this complexity to it yeah. that is not um, easily uh, or not so easily um, structured. Right, right, right. Uh, and, and we're still, and, and even just the science of sort of describing biology, yeah. it continues to, um, continues to change constantly, yeah. uh, which is why all of these databases that you might be using as your reference change every yeah. single month. <laughs> yeah, that's the frustrating part too, you know. Um, and also, it's very gene centric, don't you think? A lot of things that we do, we kind of almost have to be a little bit blind to like exons and transcripts but we have we got to use the genes and the argument for that is practical because we can do experiments with them and we can do things with them so we're kind of limited by what we can um tweak so i, I maybe in the in 10 years or so you know we will look at not amino acid or you know 
nucleotide levels, but maybe we, we, we start naming these exons. And um, I don't know. It's just that I, I have this part of me that knows that right now things we're looking at may not be the right resolution because of the, the, the speed of innovation. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, the, what you're, what you're describing in terms of resolution yeah. is, is really important, but, and, and this gets to sort of when you are studying these genes and, and their functions, sort of like, how well do we have to understand how they work? Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you develop a drug that targets a particular gene, you know, you can't just be like, okay, I hit this gene. That's cool. We're, you know, we, <laughs> we, we solved the, the problem right now, yeah. but you know, these genes, they have multiple functions. Yes. Genes might have, um, or your drug might have off target effects hitting, yeah. you know, genes that we don't know how they function. Right. And, and all, all the time stuff goes wrong because we don't have a deep understanding of the underlying biology. And despite our best efforts. Now, it's not to say that we're not trying to really understand this or we don't actually have a good idea. I mean, many drugs we have, you know, especially the approved ones, we have a very strong idea of how they operate. Yes. But, you know, there are always still blind spots. And um, do, you have, do you have those moments where I know you're suing in hard and working hard? Like, I remember when I was starting or earlier, I have a feeling that if I just did this and found those top hits and then correlated with this and found that, boom, we'll have a treatment. Like you have that like a uh, lottery feeling. And then what you realize is this thing's being discovered in 1980s and 1990s. Do you have those like moments where you realize, wow, the basic biologists, they have really figured this thing out really well. You know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think there's, there's <laughs> sort of two sides of that, right? One yeah. is there's the side that, you know, you, you're studying something and, oh my God, I think this is something really cool. <laughs> yes. And uh, you go look up the gene name and actually there's like an entire field surrounding this gene. Yeah. You just because you had never heard of it that you didn't know. Um, but then there are, you know, then there are also sometimes these moments where you find, okay, well, I did this genome wide experiment yeah, and yeah. I have this particular hit or some of these top hits here you go Google them and there's no information at all. Yeah. Um, and you're like, well, okay. So, you know, me as a computational biologist, then I'm also stuck, right? Is that yeah. like, well, you know, I'm not going to go to the lab to, to validate this. This is where collaboration becomes very important. Yeah. Um, but I, I think in terms of understanding biology at a deep level, I'm of the school of thought, obviously from Triadiker's lab is that we take this sort of top-down systems approach, yeah. right? Is that, you know, the, the, the biology manifests, I mean, when the biology is important in terms of how it manifests itself is that it manifests itself in some sort of phenotype, right? Yeah, is that, yeah. you know, you have cancer, you have this disease or something is dying or whatever. Yeah. Um, and then when you, when you can understand, okay, well, I have a group of, um, you know, I have a cohort here that's not dying and I have a cohort here that is dying. And then you start to really dig in. So what's different about these guys? Yeah. You start at the level where you, you try start at the highest level. Yeah. And then as you drill down, you start to build these, you know, huge lists of hundreds of genes. Now you're trying mm -hmm. to understand, okay, why are these hundreds of genes here? And of course, you know, it's a good chance that not yeah. all of these one, several hundred genes are, are going to be meaningful to you. Yeah. Um, how do you, 
sort of organize this information. This is where we really rely on sort of the information knowledge bases like yeah. like gene ontology. Um, yeah, and, but and when you try to use and leverage those information, um, you know, it's still like as somebody if you unless you're very familiar with the biology that still falls out, yeah. you know, there's still a lot of learning to be done. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I I agree, and it's it's like cyclic. It, it, it's you have to go down and you have to come back up and go down again and come back up. Um, I, 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 I agree. And right now at MD Anderson, I, I know we talked a lot in this kind of abstract space because I guess you and I have a little bit of an understanding of, you know, what those things mean, but at MD Anderson right now, what kind of stuff do you work on? Yeah. So um, I work on all sorts of different um, problems uh-huh. uh, with, computational biology um, and, and bioinformatics. And, and I do both computational mm-hmm. biology and bioinformatics. And I so can how, make the distinction. Can we, yeah, can you please do that? What's the yeah, difference? So, yeah, so the difference that, uh, at least in my mind and, and have had it explained to me is sort of bioinformatics is, is sort of the organization and, and processing of biological data. Uh, this is stuff that deals with sort of how do you process, um, you know, sequencing data um, from cells, how do you process sort of those raw, the raw data into a form that um, sort of uh, begins to quantify uh, what, um, you know, what, what is happening in terms of the biology in a particular experiment. And then in, in terms of computational biology, I think of computational biology as sort of the sort of the step that happens after the bioinformatics. The bioinformatics sort of organizes and gets all of the data um, processed and cleaned and, and, and um, to the point in which you can apply techniques of computational biology. So computational biology is sort of the statistical analysis, the- um, the, the dance. Yeah, <laughs> like all of those things, like the, the gene set enrichment yeah. analysis, the, um, you know, the filtering, the statistics that you do, the, you know, if you apply machine learning techniques or, you know, mm-hmm. all of that sort of, it's, it's almost sort of data science, but applied yeah. to biological data that was generated from bioinformatics. Bioinformatics, I think, is more the study of sort of the biological information mm-hmm. and the data. Mm-hmm. Um, but the computational biology is where I think is, you know, where do we, how do we translate all of these A, C's, T's, and G's um, into something meaningful? Yeah, so basically uh, what you're saying, to, yeah. Yeah. So what you're saying is bioinformatics gener- makes those inputs systematize what a thing is, what a gene is, and how to count them and all that. It creates the input that's needed for the computational biology, which takes in these inputs and does some kind of analysis and comes up with some kind of a conclusion. Is that kind of a, what you're getting at? Yeah. I, I mean, to use an analogy maybe of a car, right, is that like bioinformatics is building the car mm-hmm. and then computational biology is driving the car yeah it's taking the car somewhere yeah like you built like but you know the, just the process right of engineering and building that car is already quite complicated and not very straightforward yeah. right um and then but once you have the car right you know maybe it's easy to drive maybe it's not so easy to drive but um you know you still have to have some understanding of how the car yeah. is put together and how it's built, right? But you also have to um, 
you know, and you have to operate the car sort of correctly to get to where you want to go. And another thing that I just thought about is, you remember Andy, the our yeah, le- Andy legend, Russ. Andy? Yeah. <laughs> I remember him, um, he was analyzing, I think, the head and neck cancer. That was one of his big papers. And he was showing JP and me some figure. I didn't understand him back then, but one thing he told me was, uh, it doesn't matter um, how you do it. He just, he says, using basic statistics will get you as far. And if you don't have to use those fancy things, you don't have to. I didn't understand what he meant then, but now more I kind of, you know, understand the feel, look around people trying exciting new technology, AI and all these um, things that sound really cool. I always think about what Andy said is just take the mean, take the median, you get pretty far. If there's a signal, you'll get the signal. And what I was wondering what you think about that Andy's attitude. I- actually completely agree with (laughs) this particular attitude i mean granted this is part of you know the attitude of you know our lab a little bit right is that like you know machine learning techniques and stuff like that they're cool right and there's a lot of things that you can do with those machine learning techniques but you know there are plenty of um things that you don't need machine learning techniques to do, right? You know, you don't need fancy statistics to tell me that P53 is an important cancer gene, right? Right. Like, you know, those are, you know, those are obvious things that, you know, statistics, just basic statistics will tell you about and good, um, you know, and, and statistics with sort of strong signal or biology with strong signal, those types of things will fall out of the data. Um, and without the need of those fancy statistics. Those fancy statistics and machine learning and AI, like those are for things like when we don't know what to do, right? Mm-hmm. And that's where like, you know, the data is incomplete, the data is sparse, where we need to impute things or we have to try to, you know, figure out some way to um, to, to get data. But in, in many cases, actually, we have an overabundance of data. We have 20,000 transcripts on top of 50,000 mutation yeah. spaces uh, on top of, you know, the methylation profiles of 450,000 probes plus, you know, protein measurements, you know, a lot of like, at some point you're looking, you're, you're, you have noise right now, actually yeah. what, what's important is getting to sort of less, but more meaningful data, as opposed to, uh, you know, trying to figure out what's going on with every single little tiny data point that you might potentially have. Yeah. And then also like looking at people who are good at this and hands-on, not just, you know, writing things, but actually doing analysis. One thing that many of these people have in common is they do that. They do this kind of a conclusion making process in a clean light way. Like they, they denoise as much as, as they can. And then they summarize and it's understandable, it's transparent. And then they have a very simple figure. It doesn't look like a figure from 2020, but it's a very meaningful and says a message so i so i I see that in many um good people's good people's work lately but yeah i mean i think sort of the scientific communication is very very important especially in a field like bioinformatics and systems biology because you're dealing with you know g like you know tens of thousands of data points across you know all the genes and then now you have to sort of summarize that in such a way that's that's really meaningful and informative, right? It's very easy for you to just, you know, sometimes just 
put all of the data there and then sort of be like, okay, I, well, I've looked at this for two years. I know what this means, but yeah. you know, somebody who's reading your paper for the first time right. might have no idea, you know, right. uh, right. what, why you have like 30 different colors and all these different shapes and all the, like, you know, you have to think about, you know, your, your audience. This is something that I've been working on myself um, that I know is that I've not always been great at because I want to show you everything that's going on. But you know, when you put too much in those figures, the figures are beautiful because there are so many colors and, and shapes and, and things going on, but they also are, uh, you know, not super informative, right? Yeah. Um, and you know, sorry, we digress it, but so what kind of research do you do now at uh, in, in Texas? Oh, yeah, sorry. I totally didn't answer. No, no, question. it's good. It's um, good. So the the key things that I'm, I'm working on here are um, a handful of different things. So uh, yeah, I described sort of bioinformatics uh, as, as part of my, my job where, you know, we're essentially building infrastructure to analyze lots of different um, experiments and data types that are being generated by um, our uh, biological, my biological partners or, or colleagues, um, you know, and, and this uh, in infrastructure building is, is very important to sort of the, the second half of the job, which is sort of learning from the, the experiments that are that we're, we're conducting. Um, we are a platform focused on translational biology. So um, we do a good amount of sort of new target discovery in, in um, you know, basically crunching big public data sets, our own internal data, uh, and, and looking for, let's say, new targets to go after um, that uh, might be common or more common in things like rare cancers. Um, or uh, more aggressive cancers or uh, relapsing cancers. Um, and on the flip side, uh, you know, we also support um, all the way up until basically through the clinical trial. So not just, just the discovery part, but we also are involved in sort of the validation, the experiments, you know, understanding the biology and the validation of these targets. And then, you know, we have medicinal chemists that we work with that you know, when they come up with a compound, then, you know, they, we apply those compounds as in, instead of genetic tools. And then we understand, try to understand how that is different than using something like CRISPR. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, we go into, you know, in vivo studies. And then from in vivo studies, you go to clinical trials, all of those points, all of those steps along the way to drug development generate mm -hmm. lots of data. Um, right. and, and we're involved in all of those different um, stages. So it's uh, like, and I think that that's, really exciting so it's like um it's like the brain part of the uh i guess md anderson's this big you know big big entity where you not only get the data from public databases like tcga ccle and all that and i'm assuming you you have to also convert it clean it make it systematic and then you incorporate your own patient data cell line data whatever data you're generating to create this nice little database and then when you have a hypothesis or new compounds, you can quickly search that, you know, tens of thousands of potential hit space and say, hey, these 100, maybe these 50 have those features that you're looking for. Maybe instead of looking at everything, you can look at these uh, handful. So you, you, you're that kind of a kind of a brain that that hypothesis cleaning, generating um, that kind of uh, computational entity of the. Uh, organization is that, is that am I getting that correctly there I, I think you might be giving me too much credit by calling me the brain here but <laughs> uh, I mean I 
I think, you know, processor, we, we, we definitely, you know, help crunch a lot of numbers. Yeah. Um, and, and doing so quickly allows our biologists to move more effectively yeah. and efficiently. This is what I think is the big offering that computational biology has, right? Is yes. that, you know, biology in its nature is not fast, right? You have yes, to wait yes, for yes, stuff yes, to yes, grow. Yes. You have to, you know, put together experiments. And then, you know, if they fail, then you have to do it all over again, right? But, you know, once the data is generated and, you know, you have all these different dimensions to look at, mm -hmm. it's not so easy as a, you know, it's not so easy to do that in a single mm -hmm. um it's, it's not so easy to do that from a single person with Excel, right? Uh, you, right, right? You know, being able to sort of crunch that and, and synthesize the, the important information out of there quickly yeah. um, allows you to turn around and do follow-up experiments much faster. And it allows sort of uh, what we had talked about before. Yes, our platform is called Traction. And I think what's nice about this, mm. um, uh, what's nice about the name of our, our platform is that, you know, we are interested in translating things, but also making, in terms of the computational biology, we're interested in, in making biological problems tractable to solve. Yeah. Um, you know, because cancer is, there's all sorts of different kinds of cancers, right? And, you know, all sorts of different modalities and, and uh, how, how they, how those cancers might arise. Um, it's impossible to study them all. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that you brought up the, the aspect of the speed, because what I'm learning is the value proposition of us, the, the things that we do, right? No matter what we do, I think it's going to be very difficult to come up with that kind of cure or, um, it's hard to move the needle forward just with publicly available data. Even if it's a private good data, you have to do validation. You have to get into the specifics and context and experts. I think the value proposition is, is the speed and it's flexibility. And I, and, I, and I don't know, right now, when I see people who do data science, right, in whatever field, finance, I have friends who do finance and bioinformatics, all that is, they can do things clean and fast. And they are flexible. And I think these are great features of um, um, computational biologists. And I was wondering what you think about that. And if you have any a metric that you, that you think about how good a computational biologist is. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, the way that I measure how, I mean, I don't know how to, you know, measure any, one else and, right, and say right. how good or not productive they are. But, you know, in terms of my own work, right, I, mm -hmm. I try to, um, you know, and, and this is something that, you know, as, as somebody who's early in their research career is something that I think about, how do we get to a sort of tr like a, a use, like a, uh, an actionable hypothesis, how quickly do we get to that? Yes. Right. Yes, yes. Um, because, you know, you, the, the purpose of a biological experiment that, that they might, you know, that's something that a biologist might, might, uh, you know, do is like, you know, let's say they do a differential gene expression analysis, right? right? Like I, I perturb one group and I want to know sort of what is changing biologically. Mm -hmm. Right. So naturally, like I, I would imagine that there's sort of some expectation is like, okay, once I know what the biological yeah. function that's being perturbed is, then now I can, do this next step, right? That right. that will like you know get me to understand more about this underlying biology. What I think is important for a like a good computational biologist to do is 
to be able to answer that question concisely. Yes. Um, and, and I think that this is an ongoing and challenging problem in the field of computational biology, yeah. because, you know, um, sometimes it's the computational biologists being like, okay, well, I came up, I did the analysis. There's these like 1200 genes that are differentially changing. I ran some functional enrichment analysis and there's like 400 gene sets that are enriched. Um, <laughs> here's the, here's the top hits. Good yeah. luck with you. Right. And we do this type of analysis a lot, but, and you know, then the biologist looks at 400 different lines and they see what they want to see. And they're like, yeah. okay, great. Um, let's keep going. Right. Uh, and, and this is, I think, something that I've been trying to um, work on is, is, you know, from those 400 gene sets, you know, there's yeah. probably lots of overlap, right? Like, how do we, how do I sort of synthesize that into actually sort of more, um, more digestible yeah. uh, results? Yeah. That's, that's what I think is the mark of a good computational biologist. And this is something that I think I've been, uh, you know, I'm not great at, but I think, you know, it's something that I, I continue to work on. Um, I, you know, I, I sympathize with you. I'm not good at this, either. you know, but I do know who's like really good at this. That's Pablo. He will create that figure for you and he'll tell you a story with that figure and you'll hear what you want to hear and also want to collaborate with him. Yeah, pa Pablo's <laughs> amazing, and Pablo's definitely amazing in that way. He has a, a brilliant way of, of, of thinking yeah. about, you know, the complexities of biology and, and simplifying them. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's what makes that, you know, you know, that's, that's part of why I was so happy to have him yeah. on my thesis committee is because, you know, when you work on sort of these big systematic problems all the time, um, you, you forget. Know, it's yeah. easy to get. It's easy to get lost in those exactly. needs, right? Yeah. Um, and it's also very easy to kind of be, um, kind of a. I know you. I know you are a perfectionist, and you do things really clean from your workstation to, like your outfit, like UNC outfit, and all that. So I, I when you have that mindset for computational biology or data science, sometimes it can drive you nuts. You know what I'm saying? Like you have to be okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You have to be okay with. It's not cutting corner, but it's, it's, it, you have to be okay with that messiness yet. And, and this is, you know, so you brought up a beautiful point here, yeah. right? Is that sort of like, if you're a perfectionist, data science is very challenging, right? Yes. Because, uh, because if you're a perfectionist, right? Like the, a lot of data science is about dimensionality reduction and yeah. estimation, right? And yes. so what happens is like, you estimate, you estimate, you estimate, you estimate. And then, <laughs> you know, to the perfectionist, you're like, this is nothing like the original situation, right? Exactly. But, you know, but in, in, on the flip side is like, this is the most important information. And yeah. this is the information that we care about uh, and, and that we want to convey. And so, you know, being able to sort of strike that balance of, yes, I want to understand <laughs> deeply everything that's going on, but, you know, maybe, you know, you have to be careful, right? Because there's plenty of noise in biology and yeah. not really understanding that in, and basically saying, okay, I'm going to throw... Uh, all of the tools that I have at this particular problem, yeah. which has, you know, all these different features in it. Uh, and I think all of them could potentially be important. I think that that's unrealistic to, to uh, expect then that there would be some not, there'd be some generalizable uh, result that comes out of that. I agree. And it, I think you have to, if you are a perfectionist and if you're not going to listen to what Justin just said, you'll just say, you, you'll just have to hit a lot of wall and realize that nugget of information yourself and realize that, um, you know, it's the real world is messy, especially working with uh, biological 
um, biological. That's right. So Justin, at MD Anderson, um, what kind of people work with you? Are they old people, fresh off of college, PhDs? What kind of people you work with? Yeah, so I actually work with a, a wide range of individuals. Um, you know, they are ranging from, you know, people who just graduated undergrads um, uh, all the way through sort of late career, uh, high level executives. And, you know, what's so great about where I work um, you know, is that I get to interact with, you know, both folks younger than me, uh, all the, and, you know, while I'm on the younger end, probably of the, um, you know, amongst the group of people that I work with, um, you know, it, it gives me a lot of space to grow and a lot of great people to learn from people with years and decades of experience, uh, working in, um, you know, pharmaceutical development. And, and, and I think that that's sort of one of the very exciting things about being an uh, early career researcher is that you mm -hmm. get, uh, if you land in the right place, you can get uh, great exposure uh, to uh, lots of great learning opportunities. And, and where you work, do you also have people from, um, I'm sure there are a lot of schools around there too, right? Like universities and do you also work with PhD mm -hmm. students and academic people? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Traction, while, mm -hmm. you know, our platform is, you know, not sort of an academic department, we collaborate very closely with many professors um, in various departments across MD Anderson. Um, and we work very closely with um, their graduate students, their postdocs, and on many of their pro uh, papers. And, um, you know, I've been fortunate to have been a part of several academic publications mm -hmm. in my very short time at, at Traction. Mm -hmm. and, and that speaks, I think, to sort of the nature of the awesome work that we do. You know, we are not here to, um, we, we don't have a, a focus on, uh, on having to Paper produce papers. Yeah. Yes but we also don't have a sort of explicit mandate that we have to also be beholden to shareholders uh, of a, um, like, a, like a pharmaceutical company might be. And I, and, I, and I think that position, that kind of position where you, you have academia flavor to it, but you're not, um, you don't have a strong pressure to publish, yet you get to do research and, I think that's a like, sweet spot, in my opinion, to be in if you are, um, uh, if you do things like the we do. And I also think that many people are not aware of those positions. They think about going to postdoc or academic, being a teacher, um, or just going to pharmaceutical companies. I think, I mean, I, I, I guess, how rare is it? to have a position like yours? Like, are there many places that can do things like you do? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's particularly rare, mm. um, especially in an institution that is not primarily a, uh, in an institution that's not already some uh, a pharmaceutical or uh, business operation. So what I, I really love about working at Traction is that you know we have a academic mindset. We are led by right. uh, 
you know, people with PhDs and MDs uh, and not necessarily people with MBAs. Not to say that those people don't have great value, but, you know, those types of organizations like pharmaceutical companies, in the end, they are still, you know, somewhat beholden to shareholders. They can only sort of take big swings at, you know, drugs that are likely to affect a large market population. Right. Uh, they have to make money. But what we're focused on is we're interested in helping any patient, any patient that comes through MD Anderson's doors with, you know, if a rare cancer, hard to treat cancers, those, those uh, cancers are severely understudied and, and underserved by, you know, uh, companies that might have resources to serve them uh, simply because, you know, in the end, there won't be enough uh, people, unfortunately, diagnosed with yeah. this uh, rare disease yeah. to be able to pay for the development of a particular uh, drug candidate. And what's amazing about how MD Anderson supports our program is that they they invest all of the research and development in, uh, into our uh, our program. And so, you know, we are, of course, beholden to, you know, the University of Texas and, and MD Anderson and, and uh, you know, and attempts to be sort of good stewards of uh, of that money. Uh, but, you know, we also don't have to sort of um, struggle necessarily like, um, you know, many others might in, in an academic setting, you know, right. having to, you know, spend lots of time going to get grant money um, or, you know, doing or having sort of these, these other obligations. We get to put our head down and do mm -hmm. work um, and that we feel is impactful every single day. And, you know, and it's this beautiful mix of a, uh, almost like a, the way that maybe a small biotech company might work, mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. you know, that has the, you know, academic flavor um, of, of working in a full-on research lab, doing really cool science and having yeah. great academic freedom. But, you know, without the, the some of what I, think might be some of the challenges that, you know, really great minds in, in academia um, have to struggle with in terms of, you know, spending time writing grants and, and, and trying to raise money to, to support the projects that you're interested in pursuing. Uh, and, and I think that that is, um, you know, a really unique setup. Mm -hmm. I don't think there are many places um, in the world probably that, that have yeah. this type of, um, you know, this type of setup. But I do think that, you know, while this is kind of an experimental thing that's happening inside of uh, MD Anderson, I think it's going to be a model that, you know, really draws great scientific yeah. minds uh, into making real um, impact, uh, doing real impactful and translatable science. Yeah, at Pablo's place too, right? We, 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 we weren't that big, but um, we were, you know, method developers and we run things and a lot of doctors and labs that don't have good computational people, they send their students to us and they, they want to collaborate. They want to, they want us to help them with their thing. And in that process, I was also, you know, fortunate to be on other people's papers, but uh, that's like the interesting spot, right? Like we are, we support other people and other people, other labs, they write grants, they bring in the money, private money, public money, whatever. And we get to get a little chunk of that. And in the process, we help them with their project. 
and we spend most of our time making methods and running things. Um, and, 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 I, and, I, and I think that we should probably um, have another episode where we talk about not just early career development, but how to kind of navigate this kind of career, because I'm sure you thought a lot about different options and then you picked that route, right? So we should probably tell people about kind of, I know we talked a lot in this episode, so maybe we have another episode where we talk about career choices, methods, how to position yourself so that you have more freedom and landing in spots like yours. Maybe you are somebody who likes to write a lot about grants and write about things and publish paper. Then you have a route A. Maybe you are somebody who likes to just make stuff, create methods, uh, do analysis hands-on that you have route B. And maybe you want to change, then you need to have a certain skill set. So how about like we maybe in the future have another interview where we focus on um, career, the path, the journey, and how to position yourself. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I'd be happy to do that. I mean, you know, granted, I'm just one sort of early career researcher, but yeah. you know, I, it, those, those types of things are, you know, are relatively fresh, I think in my career in terms of things that I've thought about. And so I, I you know, I'd be happy to, uh, you know, at least talk more about those types of things. You Cause, know, cause I, I yeah. love to talk. I mean, I, I like I like this interview too because we learn a lot about like classical route, right? Go to undergrad, get the PhD, do your postdoc, get a prof- and become a professor and all that. But people don't talk about how hard it is and how stressful that is, and the success rate is so low. And also, um, there's a there's huge other opportunities, right, that people don't learn about or the schools don't like to tell you a lot about. So maybe in that episode we tell people about kind of alternatives and what kind of skills you have. Can you, can you be like maybe pandemic proof or can you be, you know, get ready when, um, when, when things get difficult? Can you get in a position where maybe you can start a company? Maybe you can apply for your grant, work with pharmaceuticals. I'm sure you're given that number of people you know in their field and your own experience. And I'll add mine a little bit too. We create some kind of a, a career, a career talk there. Yeah, that sounds great. Let's well, let's do it. Let's do it. And Justin, thank you so much. And I, I know we went over a lot. And thank you for being patient and uh, super nice to talk to you. You are my first guest, so I cannot yeah. thank you enough. I'm honored. Yeah, yeah well, absolutely. I mean, I, I always happy to talk, Quat. Um, you know, and I look forward to our next conversation. All right. So thank you for tuning in to. This episode, the first interview episode with Dr. Justin Juan. And we actually wanted to make another episode. And in the new episode, Justin and I will talk about um, just career in academia. Because he's, you know, a scientist, not in traditional uh, setting. He's not a postdoc. He has his PhD, but he chose to be a data scientist and work for an organization. So we want to talk about how to kind of... uh, prepare yourself to become a computational biologist, programmer, whatever, that allows you to, you know, have a more freedom later down the line. And what are the things that you should be thinking about? So stay tuned for that an episode. In addition, I have also some cool people lined up for this interview series of the MDPHD podcast. So um, stay tuned for those as well. And finally, If you haven't subscribed, please subscribe to this podcast and let me know how I'm doing, comment, rate it, whatever you need to do. 
And I would like to get your feedback and continue to make this podcast better one episode at a time. So thank you so much for listening and I'll see you in the next episode. Ciao.